0: The drinking I did with other people was a complete facade. My real drinking waited for me late at night and at home. The consequences of my drinking were there if you knew what to look for, but no one ever did.
1: Welcome to the Recovery Edge cast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. And today, I am sitting here with Tina, who's been a friend of mine for, geez, several years now. Um, Really one of my earliest friends in the program, and you've been um, awesome support. So it's a real treat for me to have you here sharing your story with us. Um, Why don't you give us your uh, sober date and your home group?
0: My name is Tina and I'm an alcoholic, and my Sobriety date is October 5th, 2013, and my home group is the Happy Trudgers in downtown Denver, Colorado.
1: That's where I met you. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are you up to these days?
0: Just trying to get through running a business through COVID. (laughs) It's been uh, a challenge, it's been interesting. Uh, trying to get employees to want to come back to work. Mm. Um, But it's been a a real learning for us as owners of the company. Um, People are productive from home, and I know a lot of people thought they wouldn't be, that they'd be, you know, playing and doing stuff. And we haven't missed a deadline since we've gone home. We went, sent everybody home the first week of March. Mm. last year so yeah everybody's been working from home um, we've had a challenge we tried to hire a person um, that didn't work out there just wasn't enough mentoring that could be done Yeah. and architecture needs a lot of mentoring mm. So.
1: yeah we're in the office today and it's empty it's like a ghost town <laughs> in here but out there it's starting to get a little bit more live mm-hmm. well The floor is all yours if you feel warmed up. If you want to share your story, tell us what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today.
0: Okay. Um, My AA story is is about an all-consuming mental addiction to alcohol that teetered on insanity. Um, I started drinking real late in life for an alcoholic. It wasn't until my second year of college that I found what I termed magic juice. Uh, Until then, I lived in a family where there was no alcohol usage in the home due to the religious beliefs of my parents. Um, The first time I heard about alcoholism was in a psychology course I was taking at the university. During that study, it was suggested that the students visit an open meeting of AA to get a better understanding about a 12-step program. There, I learned that one sure way of knowing you were an alcoholic was that you experienced blackouts, and they described those blackouts. I also realized that alcoholism affected all walks of life. There was a couple of cops there, there were there was a couple of doctors, um, there was even faculty members from our university, and I was shocked by that. Um, A year later, I found myself sitting around a campfire and bottles of wine were being passed around. I didn't particularly like the taste, but boy, I loved the calming effect of it. It put me almost immediately into a meditative state. The flames of the fire were mesmerizing. I don't really remember the rest of the night. Somehow, I got back to my dorm room and I woke up in my bed, but it was very disorienting. I had no memory of the evening before. At breakfast, I listened to my roommates kind of talk about what had happened and how we got home. Turns out some guys gave us rides back to the dorm. Um, But the word blackout kept coming back to me from what I had heard in AA. So I realized early on I must be an alcoholic since I had a blackout. I started drinking, but very controlled. I noticed that drinking just a couple of glasses of magic juice were amazing. I am a bit of an introvert, but after drinking, I would feel my inhibitions melt away. I was smarter, better able to communicate my ideas to strangers. I was more creative. I could solve really complex problems easily. I could work a ton of hours and get so much done. I was witty and I was able to communicate with boys more easily. I had a new life strategy. I had to find a way of incorporating drinking into my life without blacking out. At the university, I was a communications major and was a teaching assistant with the university debate team. Most of the debaters I knew were my old high school buddies. We were a close-knit group and we traveled around the country together attending debate tournaments at various universities. I had what many referred to as a hollow leg. I could drink so much alcohol. I could drink every debater under the table. It was amazing. I could party into the wee hours of the morning with all of the guys Um, And then I'd be waking up the next morning knocking on the doors telling her it was time to go 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 That was me. My stamina was legendary among the debate team What no one knew but me was that I didn't remember the night before Somehow I got back to my hotel room. I was undressed and in my bed I trusted these guys and they took care of me anyway. I think they did never knew not sure I was like the ever-ready bunny, always moving, always producing, always creating, doing, doing, doing. That was me. After graduating from the university, I enrolled in an educational Master Psychology program. I married a graduate student upon our respective graduations. He joined the military to become a pilot. The military life comprised of hard work and hard drinking. There was booze everywhere. There was Friday night at the Oak Club. There were squadron parties, keggers, officers' wives' clubs parties, promotion parties, change of command party, 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 alcohol, alcohol. And it was cheap. We got to buy it cheap at the package store. Alcohol was central to all of the gatherings. But even though it was central to all of the gatherings, I began to realize people drank different than me. People drank one or two drinks, one or two beers, and that was it. I could drink like the guys, but that was really frowned upon. I was supposed to drink like a lady. That is when I adopted the perfect officer's wife persona in public. I drank like a lady. I had my one drink or two drinks and that was it. I learned to hide my drinking. I just had to wait till all the amateurs were done and then I could drink at home the way I wanted to drink. I drank alone and in the confines of my own home with complete abandonment. I never wanted anyone to know how much I was drinking. I hid my drinking for years disposing of the extra empty bottles in the morning when I walked the dog. If it was a trash day, got dumped into my neighbor's trashes. If it wasn't, I walked over to a retail space and dumped it in theirs. There were no extra empty bottles at my house. The drinking I did with other people was a complete facade my real drinking waited for me late at night and at home. The consequences of my drinking were there if you knew what to look for, but no one ever did. I became the perfect officer's wife. In our home, I was the perfect hostess. I found unusual cocktails for the hors d'oeuvres, special wines, European beers for the entree, and special wines paired perfectly to my desserts. Friends always called to get my recipes after. They wanted to know those new cocktails I was serving. What I was really doing was making sure there was plenty of open bottles at the end of the soiree. So after everybody would leave, I'd pack my husband up to his bed and tell him I was going to clean up. And then I would drink all the extra wine that was left. I would drink myself to oblivion. And I don't know how, but my house would be clean in the morning. All the bottles would be gone. And I usually was found asleep on the couch downstairs. Now, I wasn't asleep. We all know I was coming, too, when my husband would come down. He would look around and just, thank me. Oh my god, I can't believe you got this all cleaned up. What a liar I was. Okay, fast forward to two children, 10 years of living abroad in Germany, and coming home to America, and a a divorce. Once I was no longer part of the military family, I had no excuses for whining and dining and having all these wonderful dinner parties in my home. No big parties to host. The reality was I had two kids to raise. Their welfare now depended on me. The kids were getting older and I couldn't just put them to bed and get drunk. What if they needed me and they couldn't rouse me in the middle of the night? I was now a single parent. Their dad had just received orders to go back to Europe. There was just no alone time. There was nothing I could do. I felt trapped. I had to do something. And the reality was I had to stop drinking. So I found an AA meeting and I finally got off the magic juice. I stayed sober for three years. AA was really different back then. There was a big emphasis on how much you drank before you came into the rooms. The old-timers always pointed out to me that I hadn't drunk enough, that my consequences weren't severe enough, Um, I hadn't lost enough in life. You know what? They started planting little seeds and those seeds of doubt that they planted began to germinate and they started to grow. And after three years, I began to see only differences in the room. The old timers, maybe they were right. I hadn't lost a job. I hadn't lost a house, a car. I never went to rehab. I had custody of my two children. Would my husband have given them custody to me if I was a drunk or an alcoholic? I never had the shakes when I stopped drinking. I wasn't confused, I didn't hallucinate. No symptoms of delirium tremens. I began to question, you know what? Maybe I just drank heavily. Maybe I really wasn't an alcoholic. So, after careful thought and consideration, I told my sponsor and I announced to my home group that I was leaving the AA program. They agreed, but did say if I ever thought I was an alcoholic. To come back. So I said, bye-bye, AA. Now, my story is not in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not start off where I left. I didn't even drink for months after I left the program. Um, I didn't think about alcohol. I was out of the habit of it. It was out of my awareness. And I was busy with my professional life and my kids' social activities. Uh, just so much going on. Just wasn't interested in alcohol again. But I wasn't going to AA either. But my first drink did come on December 31st, 1999. The world was speculating and wondering about Y2K. What was the morning going to bring? I had my first glass of champagne toasting in the new decade. We, I had met a man seemed special, I liked him. We each had a glass and then we corked, the reminder of the bottle. I had never corked a bottle of anything in my life. But I took the opportunity to explain to this new man that I'd been in AA for three years and that I had a problem with alcohol in the past. I didn't know if I had a problem today. But I told him the whole story And I told him, if I was an alcoholic, that I probably wouldn't recognize it. And that he might need to bring it to my attention if he ever saw alcoholic behavior. He said he would. The next 17 years started off slow. It was all about controlled drinking, but it was mentally exhausting. I limited myself to two glasses of wine and would literally pour out the rest of the bottle down the drain, not to have a third. I've always said I'm a lazy drunk. I won't open a new bottle. I won't, if I'm out, I won't get in my car and go get more. I'm just a lazy drunk. If I can't pour it out of the bottle, I'm done. Um, I no longer bothered with special cocktails only. There were no more special cocktail recipes. I went for the hard stuff, a good scotch, gin. um, And I decided that I would switch from wine and have just liquor. And so I was only gonna, I knew it was stronger, so I was only gonna have one glass. But over the years, the number of ounces in that glass kept going up, up, up. And towards the end, there was probably eight to 10 ounces of pure alcohol over ice in my glass. But I only had one. We called it the Salazar Pour. So you had to be careful if I poured you a drink because you could get really, really really drunk on just one drink. Towards the end um, of my drinking, I was getting really tired and exhausted of constantly trying to regulate how much I was consuming. I also began to notice alcohol was always on my mind. And I got into this horrible cycle where I would come to in the morning and I would chastise myself for having drunk that night And then I would ask God to help me not drink today. And I would swear I was not going to drink. And then all day long, thoughts of alcohol were circling round and round in my head. And by two or three, I was deciding what drink I was gonna have when I got home. Then I would get home, usually have my dinner, and then drink my big Salazar pour. And then come to and it would be morning day after day after day every day was the same it was a vicious cycle I couldn't stop I was blacking out during after dinner coming to in the morning with no memory I didn't know what we ate I didn't know what Ken and I talked about I didn't know anything but that was my miserable existence And no matter what I did, what promise, how many times I got on my knees and prayed to God, those foxhole prayers just didn't mean anything. One Friday, as I was pouring my drink, my husband reminded me of the conversation that we'd had on December 31st, 1999. He said, you asked me to remind you if I thought you were an alcoholic. This is that reminder.
1: Oh, I was
0: pissed. (laughs) Oh, my God, I was furious with him. I started crying, but I didn't pour my drink. I went down to the computer, and I looked up AA in Colorado. I found a meeting. Happy Trudgers. It was only a few blocks away from my Denver office. They met at 12 o'clock noon on weekdays. I didn't drink all weekend in anticipation of that Monday meeting. I was relieved, in a way, to get off of the merry-go-round. I was so beaten. I was exhausted, and I was desperate to not drink. Because of my first experience with AA, I expected I was going to have to defend why I was there. I'd have to explain why I didn't come from a rehab center. Um, As I was coming down the steps of the church, I heard laughter coming from the room and oh my god it pissed me off how could these people be laughing when I was in so much pain I was barely holding on by my fingertips and these people were yucking it up I was so pissed I didn't even introduce myself as a newcomer I never did I cried every day for a week but I came every day and the second I'd walk in that door the tears would start I remember a young woman raising her hand that she could sponsor. So I literally walked across the room to her and I said, will you be my sponsor? We started doing the work. Um, The second time in AA was so much harder than the first time. I had the gift of desperation. I may have despised the laughter, but I really wanted what they had. To this day, no one in AA at Happy Treasures or anyone else has ever suggested that I'm not an alcoholic and I've never had to defend it. It wasn't how much I drank, but the unhealthy relationship I had with alcohol. My body metabolizes and uses alcohol differently than non-alcoholic people. This time around I didn't let the gender bias of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous bother me. First time, I had all these sentences and the he's marked out and they would piss me off. This time, mentally, if it was a he, I substituted it for she. Never even bothered me. At meetings this time, I looked for similarities. In the people's shares, I looked for the same thing. The stories may not be the same, but our emotions and our feelings about alcohol were the same, and I wanted sobriety more than I wanted anything else in the world. Unlike the first time, the compulsion to drink was strong. I was promised neutrality would come with the completion of the steps. It didn't, so don't be surprised if you finish the steps and you still want to drink. People said it would pass with time and by doing the work. So I waited for the miracle that they promised me would happen. I didn't know what was going to get me to neutrality. So I immersed myself in the program, and I did it all. I completed 90 meetings in 90 days. And then after that, a meeting a day after that, I worked with a sponsor. I took AA meetings into the women's jail. I became a trusted servant in my home group. I did everything asked of me, and still the mental obsession persisted. There were times when I wondered if my higher power was punishing me for leaving AA the first time. Every night, I would ask for neutrality, but knew enough to end my prayer with, thy will be done, not mine. With the help of my sponsor, I defined my role in the AA journey. My role is to not take that first drink. I can now tell you neutrality finally did come, but it was after 17 months of hard work in the program. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but that promised neutrality came. I have a friend in the program. Tom, you were right. Alcohol is now just wallpaper. It's everywhere, and I don't even see it. That is when I finally felt the freedom of the AA program. This year, my higher power willing, and if I do my part and not take a first drink, I'll celebrate eight years of sobriety. AA has allowed me to live my life present, and in the moment. Sober life isn't all roses, and it's not all thorns. It's just life, and I get to live it until I don't.
1: Thanks. Thank you, Tina. Um, What a great story, and congratulations on your success here. Eight years almost, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Your first marriage, did anybody, or around that time anyways, did anybody start pinpointing or noticing that your drinking was unusual? Mm -mm. No? It was still under the radar, huh?
0: Still under the radar. Nobody ever, no one has ever said, you drink too much until my husband reminded me this um, last time. But nobody, yeah, I mean, I even (laughs) went... Thank God I came into the program when I did, because um, I would get drunk, um, I guess, be the life of the party, take my clothes off, jump in nude to the swimming pool at my cousin's house, crazy shit. And um, I just couldn't seem to stop. But In those 17 years, I probably only had four or five real drunks. The rest of it was that controlled, ironclad drinking that drove me to the insanity Mm -hmm. that I felt. Um, And I don't oftentimes hear that in AA meetings. I hear a lot about the physical, the tremors, the, you know, and I didn't have those. And I I do believe that more women don't have the same physical effects with alcohol that some of the men do. There may be some women that do, but a lot of the women talk about the mental obsession more than they talk about the physical. So, but you know, my first year of Happy Treasures is really a blur. Almost every meeting. Somebody would say something, I'd start to cry, and I would cry through almost the whole meeting. I cried when new people came. I cried when people in the group went out. I cried. I just cried all the time. My emotions were just totally out of control. And it was a safe place where I could vent and cry. And slowly, slowly I got better. I still cry. still cry a lot, but it it's good crying. <laughs>
1: um that first year, like if you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice, what do you think that would be?
0: Be gentle, be gentle on yourself. Um, I've always had a high bar for my behavior, for everything, I always had to do everything perfect. And when you're first getting off of alcohol, it's not the time for perfection it's a time for just not drinking. And if that's a success, that warrants congratulations every night when you go to bed without taking a drink. And I think that's something I try to really point out to my sponsees is congratulate yourself we've beat ourselves up for so long, it's almost an ingrained pattern. And I love congratulating myself a little more than beating myself up now.
1: So December 3rd, 1999, Hmm. um, you hadn't had a drink in over three years at that point, right? Mm -hmm. Do you remember how you felt? Did you, were you, did you I guess I'm wondering if you felt like maybe you had betrayed yourself a little or were you just like, screw it?
0: I loved champagne. Oh my God. (laughs) Champagne, in fact, that's a memory from my first year. Um, I used to walk past the Brown Palace and the Brown Palace had this champagne bottle that was like three feet tall in the window. And I remember on the way thinking that in my will, I was going to stipulate that I got to have a glass of champagne as I was passing, because I loved champagne. And when I took that first sip, those amazing little bubbles up into your nose, it it was just amazing. I absolutely loved it. And I was shocked when we finished our glass and can put the cork in, put the bottle. And I had never in my life seen a bottle be recorked in my household. I was just stunned by it. And then when it was out of the room, I just forgot about it. We didn't think about it again. In fact, I don't even remember if that bottle got used or drank. Or I have no memory of it. And I just, again, very slow, didn't have a a drink probably for another month. And it was just real slow. Not anything like people talk about, you know, off to the races. It wasn't for me. It was slow. And sometimes I think the disease knew that that was the way to get me back. If it had been immediate, I probably would have gone back to AA. But my disease knew me well enough to go, ooh, I can get her back if we do this slow. If she thinks she's not an alcoholic, I got her. I got her. And that's exactly how it was. Very, very slow. Yeah, the addiction was slower, and my life was different. It wasn't so social. There weren't so many parties, so many things that revolved around alcohol so it was noticeable to have to say oh do you want to do you want wine or do you want this early on now towards the end once a day I knew I was gonna have my drink no matter what
1: so hmm. um you help a lot of people these days from what I gather anyways right <laughs> how's that working for you
0: oh it's great I love the sponsors that I have um I love working with them and watching them grow in the program and then watching them become sponsors. It's, it's kind of a highlight for me. I really, really enjoy watching people grow and Alfredo, you're one of those people. I remember when you came into the program and I remember how you would beat yourself up when you would come back and share. Um, And I could see you. I could see the the sober Alfredo. And it would break my heart. Every time you'd go out, it broke my heart. And I remember how hard you'd beat yourself up. And that tail would be stuck between your legs.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd be in tears. Uh-huh. I did it again.
0: Yep. But and dumb. I remember talking to you one day, walking back to our respective offices and saying, stop using your energy to beat yourself up. Use that energy to not take the first drink. And you looked at me, you're taller than me, and you looked at me like, huh. And I thought, please use the energy to not take the first drink. Because once that first drink has been consumed, Mm -hmm. we can't make decisions after that.
1: Yeah, I remember a couple of those walks after, (laughs) you know, me going out and being like, I failed and whatever, and you were always very encouraging, you know, Mm -hmm. it was, it made a difference, Mm -hmm. because I didn't get that, you know, you're never going to get this, or come back when you're ready, or anything like that, it was Mm -hmm. just try again, Mm -hmm. and it was really encouraging, and really helped me out a lot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? That's that we portion of this program. Yeah. We all help each other a lot. You never know when somebody's words are going to have an impact on you.
1: Yeah. And now I get to use, you know, that method with other people. You know, I don't have mm-hmm. to be like, "Dude, just go out and come back. You're not going to get this or whatever." Like like mm-hmm. I never hear people beat up on others. It's Mm-mm. It's really special.
0: Yeah. Well, and I don't hear what I heard in St. Louis anymore either about, oh, you didn't drink enough, you haven't lost enough. There isn't the same badges that these old-timers wear that how much they drank and Mm -hmm. what they lost and how many wives they've had. There just isn't that kind of talk anymore. I mean, every once in a while you go to a meeting and there's an an old-timer sharing that kind of bullshit. But for the most (laughs) part, it isn't. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's really people sharing their hopes and their aspirations, you know, it's, it's life.
1: So if you could summarize your story in like two sentences, how would that read?
0: Wow, two sentences. Um... That there's a mental side to addiction that a lot of people don't talk about. They talk about the physical side and what the body needs, but they don't talk about the mental side of it. And uh, so it would be girl meets magic juice, girl ends relationships with magic <laughs> juice, girl finds magic juice again, and then girl ends magic juice again.
1: Thank you, Tina, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us on the Recovery Edgecast. And thank you, listeners, for checking us out again. Remember, you can hear more of our episodes at recoveryedgecast.com, also on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you like to check out your podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.